So tonight we come together for the recitation of the Patimokkha discipline. It's important to constantly reflect on the role of the Vinaya, the monastic discipline in our practice. Sometimes in the beginning it can seem cumbersome learning to follow many, many rules, training rules and practices and learning to do things in a certain way (coughs) which is different from the lay life. Yulambocha used to compare it with coconuts. When you buy a coconut in the marketplace, you buy it with the husk on, you carry it home, and then you break it open and you can get to the flesh and the milk inside. The role of the Vinaya is like the husk of the coconut. It might seem like extra weight (coughs) and it's something that is not really the ultimate goal of your training. Just like the husk of the coconut is not what you want to eat but it plays a valuable role in preserving what's inside. The Vinaya training is preserving and shaping our inner mental activity. It may seem like a lot of rules, do this, don't do that, that you have to learn and remember. It seems to complicate life at first. But if you understand that the principles that the Vinaya is based on and the values it gives you, these are all very wholesome and helping to train your mind to bring up the correct and suitable qualities that are needed as we develop the Buddhist path. The very foundation of Vinaya training, we are learning to live at peace with our fellow monastics and in the lay community who support us. We're learning to live in a harmless way, harmless in our speech, harmless in our actions and in a compassionate way, where we learn to help each other, support each other. We're also learning not to take advantage of the lay community, learning how to live simply, get by with little. We have to retrain the way we think, Our former habits tend to be one of accumulation, earning money to get more things, 
As a monk, we're learning to see how little we can get by with. Sometimes there may be something we could use, but we don't have, and it's not available to us. So we, we learn to see what we can, how we can get by without that particular thing. We have our basic four requisites the Vinaya allows us. We have our robes, arms, food, accommodation that belongs to the Sangha, and then we have medicines for when we're sick. We learn how to get by with the right amount. What's the right amount for our practice? To be modest, be restrained in our needs so that we don't expend a lot of mental energy and physical energy seeking, searching for a lot of extra wealth. Rather, we learn to get by with what's available <coughs> so that we can direct that energy more to the inner training of the mind, mindfulness and insight. Even what we do have, these basic requisites, as we chant regularly, the Buddha encouraged us to contemplate, to see how impermanent they are and how when they come in contact with our body, they become repulsive. You know, we, as we chant these four requisites, the, the robes we wear, they're not anything more than just a collection of elements, physical elements. They're not a being, a person, even though we say my robe, they're not a person. They don't belong to, innately they don't have, belong to anyone, they're just a collection of elements. And when you bring them into contact with your body, they get dirty, greasy, smelly and gradually become unattractive, repulsive. The more you wear them, that's why we have to wash them. The same with arms food. However delicious the food may be that it's offered to us, once it comes into contact with our body, that changes and becomes repulsive. So we reflect on the, the possessions that we do have, how we obtain them in the proper manner and then how we use them and then look more deeply to see their, the truth about them. They're just a collection of elements and ultimately we say sunya, they're empty of self. So we're not in the monastery to see how many sets of robes we can collect and measure our personal wealth in terms of how many robes or arms poles, how many different requisites we can accumulate. The opposite, we learn to get by with what we have and to reflect. Ultimately, these things, they become dirty when in contact with the body and ultimately they're impermanent. They don't last forever because nothing does in this world.
this is all part of our monastic training. We take an interest in the Vinaya rules, applying them, and hopefully over time you see how they promote and support mindfulness and insight. It's harder when you have a lot of possessions and you're going out to work and mixing with people with very different standards of behavior and different views on things. It's hard to maintain these kind of reflections. But as a monastic, you can. The lifestyle is very suited to it. <coughs> Every day you can contemplate walk around, go about your business in the hot weather you just see how your robes become stained with sweat and grease when you sit on your sitting cloth every day gradually it becomes dirty this is the Dhamma teaching us but the Vinaya training helps to give rise to the right conditions for us to see the Dhamma We eat in an arms bowl, one sitting, one meal a day, put everything into the bowl. And that may bring up a reaction in your mind. You may have some distress when food that you like gets mixed with food you don't particularly like. Or you're not getting what you want. But you contemplate, when it goes into your stomach, it all mixes together anyway. And the purpose of eating food is just to get nutrition, to get strength to practice the Dhamma for another day and a night. So there are different training rules in the practice of the use of requisites, how we gain them, the different Tudonga practices that we may keep. They're all supportive of bringing up mindfulness and seeing the mental kalesa, which are the root cause of our suffering. The longer you practice, the more you get used to the lifestyle. So it changes, the feeling changes. So at the beginning it might feel, you might feel awkward, you might feel like a burden to have so many rules. After a while that changes and you might learn to appreciate them, see them how they preserve the goodness of your practice. They help the monastery to be a peaceful place, easy to live in. Then your meditation can go better. You don't have to always be struggling with other people and how to do things. You know, we have set ways of doing things. We have a schedule. We have set practices. <clears throat> and that, over time, you appreciate that how that supports development of mindfulness and meditation. <coughs> it gets easier with time as you get used to thinking in line with the Vinaya. You just get to know your rules, what's the right way of doing things. And then it becomes you know, a support for peaceful states of mind. It develops the right qualities. 
qualities of restraint, composure in our speech and actions. Promotes mindfulness, promotes patience <clears throat> with our different desires and attachments that may still come up internally. Promotes compassion, kindness. We learn to look after each other, respect each other, respect the laity, even respect the birds and animals that live in the monastery. It promotes the right kind of qualities that give us a sense of well-being and feeling at ease within ourselves. We're not a burden on anyone, we're not bothering anyone, living very simply in the forest. The value of this is that when we come to meditate, sitting, walking meditation and just generally developing mindfulness, <clears throat> our mind gathers together more easily and mental energies can settle down when we come to meditate on an object more easily. The main aim in our practice of meditation is bring up mindfulness, put our efforts into this. As we know, it's a quality that we have sometimes, sometimes we don't. So our aim is to develop more sustained, mindful awareness of ourselves, what we're doing, what we're saying, and ultimately what is going on in our minds, the mental processes, the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions. Mindfulness is the quality that's most valuable to us. <clears throat> Where we get the effort and the energy to develop mindfulness comes from our faith. Faith in the Buddha, faith in the path of practice and the teachers who we've met or been inspired by. So we have to keep returning to the source of our faith. But from there we get the energy and that energy and effort we put into developing more mindfulness. And it's necessary because as human beings we have our five external senses, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue and the body, and then the internal sense organ, the mind, these six sense organs are constantly receiving information, sense impressions from the world. And this is where kilesa, the cause of suffering, is stimulated all the time. Pleasant sense impressions give rise to craving for, attraction for, wanting. Unpleasant sense impressions give rise to craving against, not wanting, but wanting to get rid of. And this process is going on all the time through our day, <clears throat> whether we realize it or not. But as we practice mindfulness, we start to guard our mind more carefully. And we see how the sense impressions that are coming our way, that are arising through our sense contact, are stimulating 
pleasant and unpleasant feelings and then the reactions that come to them, come with them. And we can begin to see the Four Noble Truths at work, how when you attract, get attracted to something, you want to see or taste or have something or think about something, it stimulates craving, it stimulates attachment. And most of the time that's just coming up as different trains of thought, imagination, daydreams. But as it hardens into attachment and becoming in our mind, then it leads on to action as well. <clears throat> so the more we practice mindfulness, the more we are becoming aware of this process, our attraction arises and how it affects us, how aversion arises and how it affects us. So you see, when there's something you want, it affects you physically. If it's close to mealtime, how your body reacts to the thought of food, the smell of food, the approaching time for the meal. You get saliva, you get some anticipation mentally, but then physically it's also coming up. Or say, somehow you were blocked from getting the food that you want and you haven't eaten for 24 hours. For some reason, there's a slowness in the receiving of the food or you have to wait for a ceremony or something or other that will block you from getting the food. See how the agitation from the mind moves into the body. Or maybe you go to pick some food on the table and Maybe there weren't, wasn't that so much of the food that you like. By the time it comes to you, it's gone. And the food that you liked was also the food someone else liked. So by the time you get to the plate, it's empty. How do you feel? Just these very ordinary experiences, once you bring mindfulness and clear comprehension, up in your mind, they start to expose what we call mental defilement, kilesa, based on greed, anger, delusion. So they talk about these six senses as being our teachers, our best teachers every day, bringing us sense impressions some pleasant, some unpleasant, some more neutral, but always bringing up a feeling. And if we're not mindful, it stimulates craving of one sort or another. When you're sitting meditation, maybe some pain makes you restless, want to stop. If you're walking meditation, maybe you feel tired in the legs, you want to stop. When you think of something, a pleasant memory comes up, it takes you away from the breath. Or when you think of something unpleasant, somebody said or did something you didn't agree with, annoyed you, it brings up aversion. All through the day, our mind is reacting to the different sense contact. This is where where we're practicing, learning to practice, where this is where the Four Noble Truths can be understood. Suffering, its cause, the end of suffering and the path that leads to the end of suffering. 
the more steady and constant your mindfulness practice becomes, you can notice how <clears throat> the different moods that are stimulated by your sense contact. When you establish mindfulness, you can see them as arising and passing away because they become objects for mindfulness, awareness. When there's no awareness, you just get caught into the mood reaction. It might be sitting in your mind, proliferating your mind for a while, with a certain train of thought, an emotional feeling. But when mindfulness is there, you can make it just an, a mental state, an object that arises and passes away. So you may feel happy or sad, excited or bored, angry or peaceful. But you're learning to contemplate these different thoughts and moods as just mental states with mindfulness. It starts to expose the what we call the three characteristics of existence. And these are the tools that we use to start reflecting to gain wisdom, understanding of more deeper understanding of the nature of our existence. The tilakana, the universal characteristics, meaning they apply universally to physical and mental phenomena. Anicca, impermanence, dukkha, and satisfactoriness. Anatta, not self or selfless. The contemplation often in the beginning is simply remembering these terms. And the mindfulness is like what holds your attention so that you can remember and apply the, the perception of impermanence, the perception of unsatisfactoriness or dukkha, the perception of not-self to your experience. So you bring up mindfulness as you are experiencing some pleasure, but then you bring up the perception, perception, oh, this is impermanent, this is changing, this will pass. If it's just a fleeting, brief moment of pleasure, well, you can very easily see how impermanent it is. It just arises, passes away. Sometimes the attachment is far deeper now. It may take a while before you're willing to, or able to see the impermanent nature of a certain pleasant state of mind based on a certain way of thinking, perhaps. Like sexual desire is probably the deepest, most overwhelming kind of pleasure that we experience on the, on the normal sensual realm. And if you have sexual desire come up, just trying to stimulate pleasure in the mind, keep it there as long as possible, as long as you're not mindful. If you start to bring mindfulness into the experience, you bring up the perception that this is impermanent too. So it undermines the desire, the wanting, the craving for that pleasure because you know it doesn't last. So then it doesn't have so much power over your mind, so much value. <clears throat> Similarly with aversion, you may get caught into a great angry rage based on 
what somebody else has said or done or some memory of a past event or some unpleasant situation you're experiencing that bring up this perception that it's impermanent. How long does the angry train of thought last? How long does the angry tense feeling last? How many times have we been angry before in our lives? And every time it did the same, it arose and passed away. If we ever get angry in the future, it will also arise and pass away. This is the anicca laksana, the characteristic of impermanence. However important the emotion, the feeling at the time seems to us, when we bring up mindfulness and apply the perception of impermanence to that experience, we can see oh, it does change, arises, passes away. This insight is liberating. You can bring the mind back to peace, back to quietness, even to emptiness. To see the emptiness of the experience. It arose from emptiness and it went back to emptiness. Now these insights, mindfulness based with some wise reflection, paying attention to experience and using the three characteristics, bring them into into your mind, they, they are insights you can develop at any time during your day, in any posture, any time. It's about training. These are skills that you're learning as a meditator, and particularly in the monastic environment. We are developing skills. So the aim is you do it more often, you get better at it. <clears throat> Things that you've seen before as impermanent, maybe you can see them again very quickly as impermanent when they arise. Different moods, different mind states, different desires. So it's about training in this, learning how to bring the mind back to that place in the middle where mindfulness is present and we can pay attention to our experience and we can use wisdom and bring up the perception of impermanence, suffering, not self. Apply it to whatever's going on. In the beginning, these insights may be quite fleeting, brief. But if you're willing to pr train and develop this skill, well, they become more profound as time goes on. They become, they come up easier. And they can really free your mind from some suffering in a certain situation where you let go of the proliferation, the train of thought that was bothering you. And you can really appreciate how they are tools for the ending of suffering and skillful perceptions that bring up more and more insight, more wisdom. But you might also appreciate how mindfulness is the foundation is the, like this, the support for the wisdom. If there's no mindfulness, it's very hard for wisdom to act, activate or be there in your mind. And then you also appreciate the role of the Vinaya training in supporting and bringing up mindfulness. So as you practice more, you see how each part of the practice is supporting all the other parts.
as we practice more, our ability to focus mindfulness on an object may start to improve. When we sit meditation, we get better at sticking with our meditation object, with buddho, with the breath. We might experience more of a feeling of peace and calm, physical and mental. As mindfulness is more stable, steady, continuous, then we experience a sense of well-being, what we call piti and sukha. This may be just brief flashes, brief, brief moments at first, but as we practice more, they might become more longer-lasting and more coming up more often in our, our mind. This is a very valuable quality. These are valuable qualities to experience because they're the food for the heart, food for the mind. They make the meditation more enjoyable. We have a sense of well-being and they, we say they buoy the mind. They hold up the mind in the sea of all this sense contact that we're having every day, pleasant and unpleasant. But these are inner qualities. They're not dependent on seeing something or eating something or hearing something. They're coming internally as you develop more mindfulness, more insight, and the mind starts to let go of distractions, sleepiness, boredom, worry, all the normal mental hindrances that bother us. As we experience periods where those hindrances drop away, then pity and sukha come up. We have this great sense of well-being, completeness, fullness of mind. Maybe brief, but sometimes it might last a long time. So this is the food for the mind. It, it gives us the energy, the motivation to keep practicing. Pity and sukha can arise listening to the Dhamma, reflecting on something good, wholesome, can arise sitting or walking meditation, can arise even just doing a chore mindfully, wholeheartedly. But we should appreciate the role that pity and sukha play, and they're like the signposts saying that the mind is becoming more wholesome, calming down. The danger is that you crave even pity and sukha. So you're, you're letting go of craving for the more worldly kinds of happiness and pleasure. It's quite natural your mind will migrate towards spiritual happiness as a goal and say, oh, I want, I want, and I need my pity and sukha like a drug. <clears throat> so once we are meditating, more regularly experiencing a bit of pity and sukha, we apply the same reflections, three characteristics. Pity and sukha are conditioned things. When we develop some mindfulness, the mind calms down. It's good, it's correct, but it's also impermanent. What's impermanent is not self, not to be grasped at as self. You just understand that when you practice mindfulness, the mind becomes steadier when you have a sense of well-being arise. If it's very intense, you may be able to sit and walk for many hours without much pain or 
without feeling bored or tired or sleepy. Nevertheless, it's still a conditioned thing, still subject to Nietzsche, Dukkha, Anatta. The important thing is the sense of calm, peace, good and well-being that comes out helps you to focus on the Dhamma internally. Setting aside these these terms we chant sometimes, covetousness and grief for the world, our liking and disliking for the world. You're setting that aside when pity and sukha arise, when mindfulness is more consistent, the mind is turned inwards to be contemplating the Dhamma, then you're setting aside your normal thoughts about the world past, future, plans, what you want, what you don't want. You're setting all that aside so the mind can settle down. Then the mind is ripe for deepening this insight, but you're still using the same tools, anicca, dukkha, anatta, but applying them to each different experience that you have. So whether it's the, the very state of calm that you attain, might only be for a few minutes or might might be for a whole hour that you're very calm, peaceful. It's still an Icha Dukkha Anatta. You still use these perceptions to help guide wisdom, to understand more deeply as you unravel different layers of the mind, different layers of peace, happiness, different emotional states, positive emotions. They're all an Icha Dukkha Anatta. But we shouldn't just stop there. Our teachers encourage us to go back and contemplate the body. When you're calm, then bring up the physical aspects of the body, the 32 parts, or the corpse meditations, or the four elements to contemplate, to develop some real, both calm and then insight, to see the nature of this physical body that we inhabit. It's, it's not a self, it's not ours. This really is an essential part of the practice, but it's going against the whole stream of the world. What we're brought up in in the world, our culture, society, all the sense input we have from when we were born is deluding us. It's giving us this sense that this body is me, it's who I am. And the bodies of other people belong to them, and these bodies are attractive, long-lasting, permanent, good, things that we want and want to hold on to, indulge in and experience pleasure with, and so on. We identify with this body in so many ways, even when we're not happy with our body, it's another form of identification. Whether you like it, you don't. It's still self-identity. It's what we call Sakaya Ditti. This is the first fetter that the Buddha said we really have to look into and uproot. The peace and calm of Samadhi can only suppress our attachment to the body. It can't uproot it yet. Wisdom has to do that. So we have to train ourselves to contemplate, apply the 
สัญญาสนิชดุขสัญญาอนัตตาสัญญาอันเดียสุภสัญญา to this body so when you have a, have the sense of calm and well-being that's the best state to do it it's not the only time you can develop insight into the body we can develop insight into the body in at any time but the state of calm will Provide the steadiness of mind that we can really investigate successfully, efficiently, and well. Because we're going against the stream of the world, you know, the mind doesn't like to do it. Nobody likes to visualize their own body as 32 parts: hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, the liver, the heart, the lungs, the kidneys. The membranes, the different organs, the blood, the bones, the muscles. Nobody likes to visualize these things. Nobody likes to pay attention to these things naturally. Naturally, we focus on what's attractive, what we like about our body, the look. We recognize our face in a mirror. We shape our hair. We know the shape of our body. <coughs> And we're attracted to the shape and the form of others. That's what we're normally thinking of and looking at. So now we have to challenge that when we contemplate. We have to learn how to break things apart. This is why we we call it the thirty-two parts. They're parts of this one whole. When you start focusing attention on them mindfully, with wisdom. You're separating, breaking up this sense of self-identity with the body, seeing it as a collection of parts. Each part can be broken down even into the elements: earth, air, fire, and water. Each part can be developed as a supersanya. None of these parts in themselves are very pleasant when you bring them up as an image in your mind. You look closely, say at skin. Normally, we see the, the sort of mirage of the beauty of someone's skin. But when you look at skin closely, it's full of dead cells. Most of the dust in our kuti is coming from dead skin. Skin is constantly dying on us. It's even full of little. Micro creatures that we can't normally see with the naked eye. There's things living on it. It gets greasy, sweaty, gets bruised and damaged. It smells when we get dirty. These are the kind of perceptions you bring up, just challenging the normal way of the mind. You look at a person you find attractive. The first instinctive look is to see the beauty, what you like, in the skin, in the shape, the form. This meditation, you're doing the opposite. You're going to see what is unattractive, changing that habit of mind so that you balance up the normal obsession with beauty by saying, "Well, there's the unattractive side to match it." It's not to deny beauty, but it's to balance it by saying, "Well, it's the unattractive side. You, the most beautiful skin in the world. You take it off. What's inside? The organs, the blood, the bones. 
the most beautiful or delicious food you can eat goes into the body, it's immediately turned into something ugly. Nobody likes excrement or urine. And this body is constantly producing waste, it's changing, aging, and eventually it will die. As it dies, it degenerates, goes back to the earth. So we're bringing up images of this to develop the perception of a super, the unattractiveness and the impermanence of this body, and to challenge the basic self-identity that says, I own this body. You know, which bit of the body do you really own? Which bit can you really control, make yours and do what you want? If you really own this body, you could make it do exactly what you want, look how you want, feel good all the time, never get old. Well, that's just delusion. So if we practice this regularly with mindfulness, you're developing these perceptions so they become part of your mental conditioning. They're both the practice of samatha, learning to calm the mind. They're also the practice of vipassana, developing insight. And through regular practice, little by little, whether it's just small moments of insight or very deep, profound insight, regular practice will change your perception, change your whole view, the way the mind views the body. And we become more aware of the separation between the mind that knows and is trained in insight and wisdom and the body itself, which is not a person, a being, it's just the body made up of four elements. The body doesn't know anything. Mind and body are ultimately are separate things. We have the perception of an Ichidukha Anatta and a Supasanya directed to this body becomes part of who you are, what, how you think, how you look at the world, then the way the body becomes, it's no longer something that you really cling to. You know, the fear of sickness and death starts to evaporate because you know the body doesn't belong to you anyway. The lust that you've had for so many lifetimes for other people based on the pleasure you get with this body, starts to fade. Because you know it's not permanent, it's not self, and ultimately what you lust after is not attractive. These perceptions, when practiced, develop regularly, they change the way you view things, and they lead to peace. Your lust starts to get less, it reduces your lust, reduces your attraction for the body, your identification with it. Aversion is also reduced. You get less angry when you see the body is not self. So you might have different realizations come up, like when you see this body is more like, say, clothes. Clothes, you know, we, we wear them because they're useful, keep us warm. But when the time comes, you can take them off and leave them. Put on another set. You can pick them up, you can put them down. You don't get too concerned about your clothes because you don't feel like they're you. They're just clothes. 
where the more you develop the perceptions of the three characteristics in the asupasanya towards the body, the more you see the body is like clothes. It's useful, you still look after it. It's your useful vehicle for doing good in this world. But at the same time, it's something that you pick up, you put down. Your mind cannot own this body. It is not this body. The body does not belong to the mind. So the perception changes. And this sense of separation, being with the body but not clinging to it, not being obsessed with it, not being obsessed with other people's bodies either, this disappears. This is the way wisdom develops as we practice. We may begin with just brief moments of mindfulness and developing wisdom in any posture at any time. You can reflect on the feelings that are arising in your body, how they pass and arise and pass away. You can look at your body as you have a bath or you eat your meal. Just notice. The different, these different perceptions, bring them into your, your mind, the changing nature of your body, the unattractive side of it, the lack of any self in it. You bring them up at any time. And they're all becoming, they all have, these perceptions have a conditioning effect on the mind. Little by little, those moments of insight join together. One of the benefits of insight is it brings peace to the mind. Peace, a deeper peace, deeper calm, even than the calm of samadhi, which is temporary. The peace of insight means that the mind is always in a state of letting go. Focusing towards, towards Nibbana, one one eye on Nibbāna, the cessation of attachment, the cessation of suffering, letting go. It may be brief moments, but as you keep practicing, then they get deeper, join up together, get deeper, more profound. There's always in the back of your mind some emptiness. So all the other kilesas get affected by that. You know, you're turning the tide against the kilesas. They may still be coming up, they're still there, but you're no longer indulging them or encouraging them. If you can see your body is impermanent, it's not a self, well, what's there to get angry about or afraid about? What's there to worry about? What's there to lust after? All the defilements start to seem less attractive to the mind. They're, they have less power over the mind once insight is established. So naturally the mind feels at peace, feels happy. So these are some reflections on the our practice of the Vinaya and the meditation that we do. I'll leave them with your 
you to contemplate tonight. We can sit for another period till we hear the bell. <laughs> 